0: Genesis three. Um, This week, this week, this week alone, um, we've seen record number of COVID deaths um, in this state and in other states around us. We've seen record numbers of COVID cases um, in this state and in states around us. In fact, on Tuesday, the Mississippi State Department of Health reported 111 additional deaths in one day on Tuesday in Mississippi, setting a new single day record in Mississippi, 111 deaths were reported due to some form of COVID complications, all right? And you can wrestle with what all of that means, but it's basically saying that 111 people ultimately met their demise in a way that they would not have met their demise had it not been for COVID. 111 people this week, this week alone. We have 1,000 contract workers that are coming from outside of our state that are being brought in, contract healthcare workers being brought in to help support the, 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 the surge of, of, of COVID um, throughout our state. We have, as of this week, or, or rather, as of the beginning of this year up till now, we have 2,000 less. Nurses in our state, beginning from January to now, there are 2,000 less nurses in our state. 2,000 fewer nurses. When one nursing manager at one of the major hospital systems in Mississippi was asked if, if the state's healthcare system was reaching a, a breaking point, the nursing manager responded, I think we're already broke. That happened this week. Also, this week, all the way over across the world in Afghanistan, 170 people, including 13 U.S. service members, were killed after a suicide bomber detonated explosives. At the, at the airpoint checkpoint where a- airport checkpoint where Afghans and Americans were flocking to escape an increasingly hostile regime. It is considered One of the worst single days in the history of this mission. Folks are still in danger with people who want to evacuate and still are not able to get out. In addition, there are many Christians there, both American and Afghan, who are currently facing the possible threat of harm or even danger due to the fact that that the new government sees them as a threat in their opposition to Islam. That happened this week. Also this week, Hurricane Ida, as we, as, we, as we are sitting in this room right now, Hurricane Ida is bearing down on brothers and sisters on the Gulf Coast. It quite possibly could be and may be the strongest hurricane to hit the area since the 1850s, according to the governor of that state, or the state of Louisiana, rather. Even stronger than Katrina when Katrina hit And after, after landing and, or making landfall in New Orleans, most of, most of the forecasts are showing that it is heading right on up through the, through the uh, Highway 61 pathway up to Vicksburg, Mississippi, as a lesser, in a lesser form of a tropical storm. All of that is happening and has happened this past week. That's to say nothing of the divisive times that we live in, with more and more of us being pushed hard to one side or the other. That's to say nothing of the fact that we are living in very doubtful times where people are living with people that are struggling to hold fast to their faith. That's to say nothing of the struggling happening all around us just in this church and in this room on this morning. And all of that we are experiencing this week. And the question is why? The answer is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we we begin to unpack several ways in which the fall of man completely disrupts not only humanity, but the entire creation. If you're looking for answers as to why everything is happening the way that it's happening, look no further than the fall. The first thing we have to understand is something that we've talked about earlier in this series, back in the sermon called, Man. And that is this, man was created in the image and likeness of God, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Man was given dominion over all things in this created order. Man was given the call to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the created order. That was man's call. In other words, man was the crowning achievement of God's creation. All of creation was placed under man's care. They were given full reign of the earth. Man was to steward and to use and to produce all for their pleasure and for God's glory. So there is this beautiful connection between all of creation. Each part depends on the other. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. Tim Keller gives us a quick breakdown of the word shalom. He says the Hebrew word for this perfect, harmonious interdependence among all parts of creation is called shalom. We translate this as peace. But the English word is basically negative, referring to the absence of trouble or hostility. The Hebrew word means much more than that. He continues... It means absolute wholeness, full, harmonious, joyful, flourishing life. So when we translate it to peace, we're not quite capturing the full substance of the word. Peace means the absence of trouble. Shalom is talking about full, harmonious, joyful, flourishing, interdependent life. And that's what they had in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And then they fail in Genesis chapter 3. And so because of all the create because all the creation is interconnected, and because man is the crowning achievement of that interconnected creation, when man fail, the creation entrusted, the creation entrusted to man's care fail with him. Do you understand that? Here's Keller again, quoting quoting him now. The devastating loss of shalom through sin is described in Genesis 3. We are told that as soon as we determined to serve ourselves instead of God, as soon as we abandoned living for and enjoying God as our highest good, the entire created world became broken. Human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turned from God, the entire warp and woof of the world unraveled. Disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much the result of sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. We have lost God's shalom physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, and culturally, things now fall apart. End quote. If you give man an inherently good world, and along with it, you give them the call to subdue and have dominion over it all, and they respond by introducing sin into that world, It's like giving the quarterback the football out of the snap, and then they immediately fumble the football and kick it over to the opposing team. It doesn't just affect the quarterback. It affects everything that is connected to the quarterback. Do you understand? The passage gives us a few ways in which that happens. First, we see the introduction of great pain and suffering as a result of the fall. Verse 16 of chapter 3, look with me. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. There's two things I want you to pick up out of this passage. The first thing is, believe it or not, mercy. The second thing is pain. Mercy and pain. Let's start with mercy. How do we hear mercy in this text? We hear it in the words childbearing, and you shall bring forth children. Remember the, remember the command not to eat of the tree and the consequence of eating of the tree. In that day you shall what? Surely die. And yet we hear words about childbearing, bringing forth children. How's that mercy? Well, it means that life actually will continue. God has committed steel from these sinful and corrupted vessels to bring life into this world, this corrupted and sinful world. Collectively, nothing brings us more more joy when you think about it. Nothing brings us more uh, more joy in this world than the arrival of children. They remind us that despite all of the death, all of the suffering, all of the hurting that exists around us, and despite the sin uh, that we've inherited uh, from our our, uh, father Adam and all of the sinfulness that followed him, life is still very possible. However, there are two sides of the coin in verse 16. Out of mercy, we are still given opportunities for life, but that life now comes with tremendous pain. The experience of giving life was not supposed to bring so much pain, but now due to sin, not only is life giving painful, but it is greatly intensified. God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. BJ and Elijah are our joy. We love BJ and Elijah. Candy and I, for, for, for Candy and I, they bring us so much happiness. They bring us so much joy. They bring us so much life. But both of them came into this world through a tremendous amount of pain from my wife. Take, for example, BJ, due to complications, Candy was in labor hours upon hours upon hours. Candy was in labor like 24 hours. Suffering, fever, infection, just to bring that dude back there on the camera into the world. Life through great and enormous pain. When B.J. arrived into this world, he had to immediately begin antibiotic treatments. And and, and it was on a a hunch that that our pediatrician said, let's give him some antibiotics. We don't have any tests yet, but given that his mom had that infection, let's give him some antibiotics just as a preventive measure. And he was later on rushed to Central Mississippi Medical Center over in Jackson and placed in newborn ICU. And the doctor there said that the proactive actions of our pediatrician to start treatments early were probably what saved his life. Life through great and enormous pain. Many of you have similar stories. Maybe you have stories of your own. Maybe you know friends and family who have these sort of, uh, sort of stories. You know what it feels like to experience life through great and enormous pain. Many of you have stories where the child didn't make it. You know what it feels like to experience life through great and tremendous pain. That is a product of a sinful fallen world. Now, listen, there is no way around that. Contrary to popular belief, there's no way around that. Some of us may experience less than others, but we will not live this life without experiencing some of it. If you try to live life under the delusion that you will not experience such pain, let me tell you what's going to happen. You are, in a sense, dismissing the impacts of sin, and it's going to lead to great tragedy, and great sorrow and great horror when the fallenness reaches your door. If you tell yourself, well, I mean, you know, I, I, just, I just don't even pay attention to that kind of stuff. It's not going to happen to me. You will find yourself at a point where it will happen. And when it does happen, it's going to destroy you. And so there's no way around this. We have to acknowledge the fact that we live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, pain comes with that fallenness. Chip, uh, Chip Dodd, the Christian therapist um, that I have great, tremendous amount of respect for, he puts it this way. He says that life is tragic, but God is faithful. Life is tragic, but God is faithful. These are the conditions that have been created by sin. This is the hand in which we've been dealt as a fallen world. The sooner we learn that, the sooner we can begin to live a life through pain that is fully dependent on God to carry us through the pain. Do you understand that? The sooner we learn that, the sooner that we can begin to live a life, even in pain, that carries us to God through the pain. But the impacts of the fall don't stop there. In the second half of verse 16, we see another impact of the fall, and that's the struggle of relationships. Verse 16 says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In many Bible versions, this verse says, your desire shall be for your husband. And and when people read that, they get a little confused, you know. Men read that and they're like, oh, okay, so I'm going to be hot stuff to her now. It's like, "Nah, that's not what this is about. Not at all. In fact, the ESV gets it right. The helpful clue before the ESV had that translation, and and people were struggling with the KJV version of this, the helpful clue is actually found in Genesis chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. He says this, or the scripture says this. And Abel also brought out of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Listen to this. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the same text. It's the same wording. If you look at it in Hebrew, it's the, the formation is the same. Sin, sin's desire is for you. Like I said, the ESV gets it right by saying its desire is contrary to you. Sin's desire is for you. And we know that when sin has a desire for you, that's not necessarily a good thing. Sin's desire for you is not a good thing. Eve's desire for Adam in Genesis 3 isn't a good thing either. What God is pronouncing here is the beginning of ongoing conflict in relationships. Before sin, Adam and Eve, fully exposed in the garden, no clothes, not a hint of shame, fully vulnerable, absent of shame, and united in their call to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and exercise dominion in the world. And then sin sin shows up on the scene, and immediately vulnerability drops, shame rises, unity drops, conflict rises. They're pointing fingers, they're blaming one another, they're covering up. One theologian captures it this way. He says, and he says, Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, portrays a marriage relation in which control has slipped from the fully personal realm to that of instinctive urges. In other words, it moves from to love and to cherish to desire and dominate. While even pagan marriage can rise far above this, he continues, the pull of sin is always towards it. In other words, the tug of sin is always moving us in our relationships from love and cherish to desire and dominate. This is not just marriage. The pool of sin in any relationship that you have is moving you in that direction from from love and cherish to desire and dominate. You enter into relationships looking for angles, looking for what's in it for me. How can I win in this? What can I get out of this? Not what can I give to this? You don't have to look far to find this impact. Literally in the very next chapter of this book, with the very next set of family members, it's like like God creates Brian and Candy, and Brian and Candy do something stupid and then have BJ and Elijah, and Elijah knocks BJ off. But it's literally, that's what, it's literally that's what happens. I mean, immediately right after this, they have Cain and Abel and Cain and Abel. Conflict. Murder. And that murder is ultimately a failure of relationship. And these, bro- these two brothers, we see the immediate impacts of the fall. We see jealousy and envy. Cain watches as Abel sacrifices Um, Abel's sacrifice, rather, is accepted while his is not. And then what? He gets jealous. He gets envious. He gets angry. What's interesting about Cain's anger and envy and jealousy here in this text against Abel is that it is misplaced. God says to Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. In other words, it's not even about Abel. It's really about you. You do well, you'll be accepted. Anybody ever seen that before? (laughs) Anybody ever seen that happen before? kid studies hard for a test, gets a good grade, a bunch of other kids are in the class goofing off, not studying hard, they get bad grades, what do they do? They look over to the other kid that got the good grades say, you think you're better than us, don't you? What? <laughs> I studied. <laughs> Y'all didn't study. Case closed. I mean, that, that's what happened. Has nothing to do with me being better than you or even thinking that I'm better than you. No, apparently you think you're better than us so much that you didn't have to study. Right? But sin doesn't lead us towards accountability, it leads us away from it. In fact, that's what happens, right? God visits visits Cain, asks Cain, hey, where's your brother Abel? How does Cain respond? Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, I don't owe him anything. I don't, I'm not responsible to him or responsible for him. You see that impairment of relationships that happens? And it's seen throughout all of Scripture. Abraham in the conflict that he creates by having a son outside of his marriage with his, with his mistress. And he creates year, years-long, ages-long conflict. The conflict between Jacob and Esau. The conflict between Joseph and his brothers um, after his own father, Jacob. The conflict between Egypt and Israel conflict between David and Solomon, the conflict between, I mean, the conflict of David's children, and on and on and on and on. Because of sin, we see relationships navigating one conflict after another conflict. And at the heart of those conflicts is the Genesis 3 judgment, the desire to rule, the desire to dominate, instead of the desire to love and to cherish. In fact, the Apostle James says about this reality that we experience. Chapter 4 of his epistle, verse 1 through 3. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Listen, to spend it on your passions. He says, what's at the heart of your conflicts? Your need to desire or your desire and your need to dominate. That's at the heart of your conflicts. In fact, I'll go this far and I'll tell you that the sin on the inside of us, Keeps far more trouble stirred in our conflicts than we're willing to acknowledge and recognize and admit. The lack of patience, for example, in you leaves you little room for disagreement with others. The lack of mercy in you leaves you little room for someone to wrong you. The lack of gentleness in you leaves you little room for you to address someone in the wrong. Or address someone in the right way when they're in the wrong, rather. The lack of humility in you keeps you from being able to repent and apologize for your part in a conflict. The selfishness in you keeps you... Pushing yourself to the center of attention in your relationships, making it more about you. The lack of self-control in you keeps you looking for like-minded people that will encourage you in your lack of self-control, a.k.a. in, in, in your addictive behavior, your addictive and destructive behavior, rather than challenge you in that addictive and destructive behavior. You keep asking yourself, why do you have bad friends? Oftentimes it's because you're picking them. (laughs) Sometimes the good friends are challenging you in ways that you don't want to be challenged. So you pick bad ones. And you want all of the benefit of having a bad friend except for the fact that they're bad friends. Are you tracking with that? Is that making sense to you? But then there's the trauma from others in the past that are sinning against you that you think you've buried, but that it still shows up in, way, in, in the way in which you treat others, the way that you retreat from others, the, the lack of trust that you give to others. And so, in other words, sometimes it's not your sin. Sometimes it's somebody else's sin that has impacted you significantly, and you've never dealt with that. Does that, does that make sense? But regardless, there are a lot of things happening in us that are creating conflicts outside of us. And what do we often do? First thing we do is we look outside of us and say, well, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. It's It's, it's everybody else's fault as to why I'm broken. Rather than recognizing that I am a product of the fall. I did not go unscathed. There are some things in me that need addressing. There are some things in me that need God's handiwork, that need the work of the Spirit in my life. Things that not just simply I see clearly, but there are a lot of unseen things in me. Saints of God, the greatest counsel I could give you this morning is to start inward and ask yourself, is it my own indwelling sin or is it my own unwillingness to confront the uh, the, the hurt in my heart from someone else's indwelling sin on my life that keeps me running to these bad relationships around me? Because at the heart of most of our relationship woes is the impact of the fall. Instead of looking outside of you, spend some time asking the Lord to reveal everything that is inside of you that may be causing dysfunction. And then by his spirit and by his strength, ask for the uh, grace to begin to weed those things out. Make your prayer the prayer of the psalmist. In Psalm uh, 139, verse 23 through 24, search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We We have to reckon with the reality, saints, that the fall has broken us in ways that we don't even understand. And it's impacting the way that we relate back to one another. Now, lastly, let's spend a few minutes turn our attention to Adam, because in God's judgment on Adam, we see some additional impacts of the fall as well. So, quickly, real, real, real quickly, let's try to dive in here. When you look at verses, um, you look at verses 17 through 19 of Genesis 3. We have to take into that, uh, into those verses, a very important lesson, and that is this: work has never been a part of the fall. Work was never a part of the fall. We were made to create. Genesis 2, we're given a creative mandate. We're given a production or a work mandate in Genesis 2 pre-fall. Before the fall, we were made to create beauty in this world. We were made to produce in this world. We were made to produce humans, be fruitful and multiply. But we were also made to produce new inventions, new ideas, new culture, new art, new music. God placed Adam in the garden and said, the whole world is yours to subdue and exercise dominion over. In other words, go and be creative. Go and create. You were made in my image and likeness. Go now and create. That was before the fall. I know some of you are probably saying, sitting here, uh, sitting in here, saying to yourself, well, (laughs) you know, I I didn't inherit that from Adam. (laughs) Because I hate working, right? God looked at Adam, he saw he was working, said it was good. God looked at me, saw me working, said, mm mm, not good. (laughs) So So I know some of you may be thinking that. But. Again, take into consideration that your work is post-fall. And that's what Genesis 3 and 17 through 19 explains. He says, and and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, Saints, part of the fall is not only our death, as we've mentioned, but it is the death of creation. Creation is fallen. That's why New Orleans, this very hour, has a category four or five hurricane bearing down on, 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 it, on, on it and on its citizens. The fall not only brought the suffering of man, but the fall brought the suffering of everything man was given the responsibility to subdue and exercise dominion over. Even creation itself, the Bible says in Romans chapter 7 that creation is groaning and waiting on what? On the revealing of the sons of man. In other words, when we're redeemed, creation will be redeemed. Creation will be redeemed when we're redeemed, because creation is forever tied to us. So now, now, as a result of the fall of man, and 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 as a result of the fall of creation, work, production, creativity has become painful. In fact, the same word for pain here in the description of this 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 plight that Adam has is the word that was used when God was describing Eve's excessive pain in the in the childbearing act. It's the same type of pain. Basically, now creating humans will be painful, right? And creating works out of creation. And products out of creation will be painful as a result of the fall. And here's what that means: it means that we are now in an unending cycle of work, eat, sleep. Work, eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep. And guess what happens? We stop working, we stop eating. <laughs> you continue to sleep, but maybe not for long. We lose the ability to produce and to create and to make and to eat when we stop working. We are now in this endless cycle where we have to work and work is painful and, and, and we have to do it in order to eat. And then, we ha- and then we sleep and then we start back over again. And if we stop working, then we're going to eventually stop eating and then we will eventually stop creating and producing and we will eventually die. That's what happens. Don't believe me? Give it a shot. Say, me and my family, you know what? We're just going to stop. Period. Stop producing. Stop working. Today. Gonna stop. Stop cleaning, stop cooking, stop dreaming, stop planning. We're just gonna shut it all down. Give y'all about a month. This is just an inescapable reality for us. But here's the thing while you do that because of the fall, you work out of pain. And you have to continue to do that in order to reap anything. And you have to do it really, really hard or you're not going to reap much, right? I mean, think about, think about, think about the, you know, the work you do in your yard, the work you do in gardening. It can't just be kind of like, you know, just, you know, half, half-hearted. You got to put your energy into it to see real produce. You don't put in, any, anything into it, you're not going to see good produce. And so that's the reality. We have to do that. But guess What happens? As you do it, because it's painful, because it's hard, because it's grueling, as you do it, you are losing a little bit of yourself every time you do it. What do I mean? I mean your body aches. Your body gets sore. Your body gets worn down. Your body gets tired. And you just pick up every single day and you do this. A little, little more tired, a little, little weaker, a little older, aging. And you do that until there's nothing left. And you return to the dust. That's what God said, what's going to happen? He said, this is the judgment. Life is going to be hard. Work is going to be hard. And you're going to eventually return to the dust. Thorns and thistles, you shall shall work, and even out of your work, you're gonna produce, you're gonna work really, really hard, and thorns and and thistles are still gonna be there. Weeds are still gonna grow up, and you gotta take those out, and then and then more weeds are gonna grow up. And I'm not just talking about garden weeds, I'm talking about life weeds. Talking about the work that you do in just regular life. No matter how hard you work, there's still gonna be things plucking up out of nowhere that you gotta, you know, oh man, I gotta take that down, I gotta take that down. Always something to do, always something to do. And that's just going to be the cycle of life until eventually we return back to the dust. Folks, that's the curse. That's the result of the fall. So if you try to stop the pain of working, you'll die. You say, I'm just going to stop because I don't like like how hard it is. Then you're going to die. But if you keep working, you may prolong it, but you're going to die. You say, that's not fair. No, that's the fall. That's the fall. That's what we've inherited. So what's the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. In John chapter 9, verse 1, there's this man that's blind from birth. And the disciples ask Jesus... Verse 2 Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered them, It was not this man's sin. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He eventually heals that man. What's going on there? Sometimes when we look at suffering, We're trying to figure out whose fault is it. We say, you know, well, I mean, it must have been something I've done or it must have been something you did and that's why you're suffering like you're suffering. Must be something that your mother did, or your father did, and that's why you're blind. Or it must be something that your mother did, or your father did, and that's why you're deaf, or it must be something that your mother did, or your father did, and that's why you're ill, or it must be something that your mother did, or your father did and that's why you're poor, We have all these reasons, right? We're saying, hey, well, you know, it's somebody else. It's somebody's fault here. And what's interesting about what Jesus does here is he says, no, it's neither of their faults. It's not their sin. It's not his sin. There is an unspoken implication here before he gets to the glory of God, and it's this it's not their sin. It's not his sin. It's sin. You understand that? It's the fault. That's why he's blind. Has nothing to do with something he did in the womb. He was born in shape. He was shaped into iniquity. It's the fall is why he's blind. It's the fall why we have citizens of our country being slain in Afghanistan and countrymen, at fellow Afghans being slain. It's the fall as to why we have Hundreds of thousands of people dying from a disease, and we argue and complain and fight over whether or not we wear masks or not. Like, who cares? I mean, let's just just try to figure out something to help the people. I don't even care about the mask. You can debate all that. I'm just worried about the people. Can we do some work to help the people? Whatever that looks like. But let's not argue anymore. But it's the fall that we argue over these things. It's the fall that we fight and complain over these things. It's the fall that, we, that our nurses and our doctors are inundated and burned out and quitting 2,000 of them in our own state. It's the fall that our brothers and sisters in our own church have to wrestle with sickness in their bodies. It's the fall. It's the fall that marriages struggle. It's the fall that relationships struggle. It's the fall that churches, is, that churches break up. We give too far, too far little credit to the fall. It has impacted us in ways that we are still trying to comprehend. And so this young man is, or this man is blind because of the fall. But Jesus says this. It's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. He says, it is in order that the glory of God might be shown. What is he saying here? He's saying that this man has not sinned. That's not why he's fallen. And so in other words, he's not going to be able to do good enough. Hear me. He's not going to be able to do good enough to fix this. All right. Because that's not why he's broken. So he's not going to be able to do good enough to get out of this. But he is blind in order that the glory of God might be revealed. Meaning... That he's blind in order that you may see that I have power over the fall. Are you tracking with that? So Christ has power over the fall and he demonstrates that power in the healing of this man. Now. Does that mean that he's going to heal all of us every single time, and that all of our relationships are going to be fixed when we when we come to Jesus, and that all, and that our, all of our marriages are going to automatically be fixed? And, and all, that's not that's not the point. The point that he is making is that he will reverse the effects and the impacts of the fall when it's all said and done. That he has begun, and that by giving him, by granting him your life, or by rather, by laying your life down and saying, Christ, take my life, I trust you with my life, I trust you as Lord and as Savior, then you will receive the Spirit of God living on the inside of you and the effects of the fall will begin to be reversed in you. And you will see the full reversal at your death. You will see, will see you, or rather, you will see the full reversal at the culmination. Of Christ. When Christ returns and he takes all of us back, and then we see him, and the Bible says, What? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. Do you understand that? In other words, through him, the reverse of the fall, or rather, the, the fall is reversed. Are you tracking with that? And so, if you're looking for ways out of the fall, there's only one way. Turn your life over to Jesus Christ. Embrace him as Lord and as Savior with the hope that the fall and all of his impacts and all of his effects will one day be reversed when we meet him. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you